0: So if you have your Bible, you want to turn to Revelation chapter 1. And our goal this evening is to make our way through the remainder of chapter 1. Last week we made it through three verses. Someone said, how far did you make it? I said three verses. And they said, this is going to take a while. Well, last week was different because we had so much introductory material. However, we will not rush through this. We'll take our time. But I think... This evening we'll make it through the remainder of chapter one, hearing the rest of the prologue and looking at the first vision that John has. Just as we get started, I know there are some who may not have been with us and others who are still working to um, contain all of the information that was thrown at you last week. And so um, if you want to listen again, or if you want to listen the first time, if you'll go to elkdale.org and under the ministries tab, there's a... Um, an option to choose the Revelation study, and there you'll find the audio uh, for last week, and we'll put them there every week. And um, when your pastor is no longer technologically challenged, we'll get them on the podcast. But we're not there yet. So um, let me just remind us of where uh, where we looked last week at the background of uh, Revelation, and then at a couple of points out of these first few verses. Um, You see this on the front page of the session, two notes. So we talked about the author, that John, the apostle, he doesn't reveal himself as the apostle, but he reveals himself as the elder, as their brother, as their partner in the tribulation. Uh, This is almost certainly the apostle whom Jesus loved. Uh, John is the author of this book. He writes in the mid-90s AD. Uh, This is the last chronological book of the canon of Scripture, of the New Testament particularly, um, and that means for us that a, uh, an eyewitness of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus could have potentially lived long enough to have read all the books of the New Testament canon, to have read the entirety of the scriptures, uh, which is quite a different story than what you'll commonly hear if you watch uh, stories about the New Testament on History Channel or, or read uh, some of the magazines that often come out around Easter time. The style is threefold. It is, first, apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is uh, is marked by symbolism. It's marked by um, almost the fanciful and frightening. And it is particular to uh, the books of Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, as well as uh, to the writings of Um, various uh, non-canonical authors during the intertestamental period, the time uh, after the close of the Old Testament canon, before the open of the New Testament canon. It's prophetic. It it is a book that calls itself a prophecy in multiple places. Um, Prophecy is twofold. Often we think about prophecy being uh, foretelling, telling us about what will happen one day. Certainly the revelation is that. But when we look at the Old Testament idea of prophecy, it is more often forth-telling. It tells what the church or what the people of God need to hear in their day. And uh, the revelation is that as well. It is a call to think about the things that are and the things that will be, uh, the things that are to come. And also, it is a call to then put those uh, into application to allow that knowledge of what Jesus reveals to his church to impact the way we live in the here and now. And then this book is an epistle. It is a letter to the churches, particularly to seven churches of Asia Minor. And we'll speak about that a little more this evening. The purpose of the revelation is to both warn of impending tribulation— and to witness to the Lamb who through his death and resurrection calls the church to overcome. One of the things that we will remember over and again through our study of the Revelation is that the Lamb has overcome, therefore we, the people of God, can overcome as well. Uh, We overcome through him, through his blood, through his sacrifice, and if we do not overcome, then we will be left undone in our sin; there is a call to conquer. You see the structure of the book it is um, simply organized around a prologue and epilogue and in between four visions. the first part of the first vision we 'll look at this evening and then we think about how to approach the book we If you remember last week. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the four major views of the Revelation, how to approach this. Uh, they are classical or historical premillennialism, dispensational premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And then there are four particular views of how to, how to judge or how to assess the historical events uh, that are described in the Revelation itself. And so we've reduced this uh, from purpose of study. Uh, The the position I'm taking is um, a classical or historical premillennialism with a futurist view. Uh, I'll not read all of that paragraph, but that'll give you uh, some more explanation. As I told you last week, if that's not the camp you're in, and you may say, Preacher, I I don't know what camp I'm in. Uh, I'm in a different camp, or I'm in no camp. I just recognize this sounds different than what I've heard before. That's okay. We're just not going to take time in this setting to chase all of the rabbits of the various views. Um, It would lead to a lot of confusion, and it would not be productive. So, I encourage you to get Steve Gregg's book, um, The Four Commentary View, the Four View Parallel Commentary, uh, that'll take you through the whole book and show you application and interpretation for the various views. Um, And if you have questions, you can ask me afterwards or at another setting. We began by looking at these first three verses of the prologue and talked about the qualities of the revelation. We looked at its substance, which is Jesus Christ. Its source, which is God the Father. Its significance, which is to show his servants what must soon take place. Its sending, which is by an angel. And its seer, which is John the Revelator, the elder. And then we talked about those who receive blessing. For verse 3 tells us, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so those who receive blessing or those who flourish and are fruitful in the way that God intends for all of his people to be are those who read this book aloud and those who heed. We want to read together uh, beginning in verse 5 and we'll read through verse 8 first and then we'll walk through these verses and come back in a bit and read the remainder of chapter 1. Revelation 1 and verse 4, this is what the word of the Lord says. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty John begins in the prologue here, having offered us some understanding of the apocalypse, the revelation itself, and having shown us a word of blessing, he begins now by offering a word of greeting to the people of God. You see first the greeter, then the greeted, and then the greeting itself. The greeter is John. He tells us no more about himself at this point, but we will learn more about him in the succeeding verses. And those who are greeted are the seven churches in Asia. We'll learn what these seven churches are. They are seven real churches. Some versions, some views of the Revelation would take these to be time periods in the history of the Big C Church. All the church, all the people of God at all times and places. But there's no reason to think that these are figurative symbols of a time period in the history of God's people. They are real churches just like the church at Elkdale, And then you see the greeting. John offers to the people of God grace and peace. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. Grace and peace are customary in greetings of the New Testament, and certainly were customary of the time period. Grace is, as we've talked about most recently in our study of Galatians, grace is the unmerited favor of God. We might press that even further. My Greek professor, uh, Brian Vickers, taught us that grace is not just the unmerited favor of God, it's the demerited favor of God. It is not just that we've done nothing to deserve God's favor. It is actually that by our sin, we have spurned or turned away the favor of God in our lives. We've rejected it, and yet God gives it to us anyways, and freely, and joyfully, and gladly. He pours out His favor upon us. Grace is the favor of God upon His people. And peace is the outbearing of that in our lives. Peace is our status, it is the reconciliation that we have as sinful men with holy God on the basis of God's work in our lives. And particularly when John offers peace to the people of God, he is not just talking about their their peace or their reconciliation with God, Theoretically, he is talking about it practically. He wants them to know this peace. Much like the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae and instructs the people of God to walk in peace, to be ruled by peace, so John wants the people of the churches of Asia Minor to experience the peace that comes from the triune Lord. He offers to them, sends to them grace and peace, and these things come from God. In fact, when we look at the New Testament, grace and peace only ever come from God, and they never come from man. That's important for understanding verses 4 and 5 Because sometimes we would look at the seven spirits and based on what Jesus says at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, we might believe that these are angels uh, that are particular to the churches or we might even think that they are the preachers of the churches. But instead, I think it's right for us to understand that here, because grace and peace only ever come from a divine source... What we have represented in verses four and five is a picture of the triune God. And so you see first a reference to God the Father. It says in verse four, Grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Here is the reference to the Almighty, to God the Father, the head of the Godhead. God the Father is the one, like the Spirit and Son, they share their attributes together. What is true of the Father is true of the Spirit, is true of the Son. And yet the leading person of the Godhead is marked out by this all-encompassing control because of his all-staying reality. He is the eternal one. He was. He is. He is to come. Of course, what is in reference here is the background of Exodus chapter 3. And you remember there Moses wants to know what is the name of God. If he is to go and represent God and fulfill the prophetic work that God is calling him to, what is he to say about this God? Who is it that sends him? And you remember that God reveals his identity, at least in part, to Moses. And he says, I am Yahweh, I am that I am. One translation of that term, Yahweh, is the eternal ising one. He's the ever ising one. He's the one who always is. In eternity past, he is. In eternity future, he is. And in the present, in the midst of human history, he is. He is by his very person, eternal And so he is in control. And then there's a reference to God the Spirit. You see that he says that this grace and peace are from the seven spirits who are before his throne. One of the things that we'll learn as we walk through the apocalypse, the revelation, is that we are to take everything seriously, but we are not to take everything literally. There are symbols used in the nature of apocalyptic writing, In fact, we are told that by John himself. Often, John will say, I saw something and it looked like. I heard something and it sounded like. And that's John's way of pointing us in to the fact that we should take this seriously. There is really something being communicated. There is a truth that we're to understand, but but it's not to be taken literally. Not everything is literal. Much of the revelation is symbolic, and we should be looking to see what is being symbolized. And so when we read in Revelation 1 and verse 4 about the seven spirits who are before His throne, we, I don't believe, are to take this to be seven particular spirits. There are not seven holy spirits. Instead, we're to understand seven as a number of completion, as full fold, as the whole of something. And so when John says that I saw and I'm commissioning to you grace and peace from the seven spirits before the throne of God, he is saying that I want this grace and this peace to come into your life from the triune Lord, from God the Father who is and who was and who is to come, and from God the Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit, the full Holy Spirit who gives life to the people of God and causes them to be born again From above. And then he says that grace and peace come from God the Son. He says in verse 5, from Jesus Christ. And he tells us three realities about Jesus Christ. He says first, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The word for witness here is the word from which we get our English word, martyr. And when you think of a martyr, you often will think about someone who dies for their faith. For a cause. But the word martyr did not have that connotation yet in in human history. This word doesn't mean someone who dies for their faith, not at this time. Instead, it means someone who is a witness, someone who testifies to what they have seen and heard. And John says about Jesus that He is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who is always testifying to the truth. Jesus is the one who is always pointing us to who the Father is. Jesus is the one who is always revealing the reality of redemption by His own sacrifice. He is the faithful witness. Then John says, number two, not only is he the faithful witness, he is the firstborn of the dead. This, is, this idea of the firstborn in, in the Hebrew culture uh, carries the idea of primogeniture. Primogeniture is the system in which the, the eldest child receives the bulk of the inheritance or the estate. It's the way of preserving a family's position and honor and, and their legacy and impact on the world. And so when John says that Jesus is the firstborn, he's saying that that Jesus is, he's not the created one, instead he's saying Jesus is given priority of place among the family of God. It's not that Jesus was literally uh, uh, born and became God. It is that Jesus, the eternal God, became man and by accomplishing salvation has been exalted to priority of place. He's been given a position of authority. He has been given a position of rule and control and reign. And it is because He has conquered death. He's the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, Paul would say. It's the same concept. Here what we're to understand is that Jesus, by virtue of his crucifixion and his resurrection, has been exalted by God the Father, given priority of place in the family of God, and he is the one who causes every person to have hope that death is not the end because he conquered death for us. And then there's a third attribute of Jesus that John points out. He says at the end of verse 5, he is the ruler of kings on earth. John wants you to understand that of all the authorities in your life, none of them are greater than Jesus. And the reason that you need to know that and the reason that I need to know that is because the authorities, the human institutions of governance over us are often despotic and wicked, totalitarian, authoritative in ways that do not lead to human flourishing but actually cause people to suffer and to despair. And sometimes in the face of those kind of human institutions of governance, the people of God are disheartened and discouraged. And often we will find ourselves wondering, first, does God care? And second, is God in control? And so because the people of God are beginning to experience difficulty, hardship, tribulation, persecution, suffering, on account of their faith in Jesus Christ, John says from the outset, Jesus is the ruler of kings on the earth. You may find yourself under a human authority who does not cause you to flourish, who doesn't want you to enjoy life, who doesn't want you to succeed, but don't give up because that human authority is not ultimately in control Jesus is. So the first thing that John gives us is a word of greeting. And then in verses 5 and 6, he gives us a word of praise. There's a, a doxology here. In verse 5, he says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a word of doxology, a word of praise. And so here there's a hymn to God. It's a call for the people of God to offer up worship to the Lord. So I want us to answer some questions as we look at these two verses. And the first question is this, who is worthy of our praise? Certainly we would say the triune God is worthy of our praise. God our Father, Son, and Spirit is worthy of our praise John is not denying that, but he is particular in the object of his devotion here and he calls us to give praise to Jesus Christ. We know that because he says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us priest to his God and Father. So clearly in John's view here, this word of praise is being offered up to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we ask the question, why is Jesus Christ worthy of our praise? You may say, that's kind of a simple question. I mean, here's a softball, right, at the beginning of this great study. And certainly, it it is kind of a softball question. It's easy. But if we don't get this right, we won't get anything else right. You need to know why Jesus Christ is worthy of your praise, and so do I. So here are four reasons that Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise. The first reason that Jesus is worthy of your praise and mine is because He loves us. John says that. He says, to Him who loves us. There are days when you are not lovable. And there are days when I'm not lovable. There are days when we get up out of bed on the wrong side, it would seem. We don't have the coffee that we would enjoy most mornings. We, we are immediately inundated with responsibilities from our jobs or our families that, that put us off. And we find ourselves frustrated and difficult to get along with. The people around us, They struggle to love us. And spiritually speaking, we are almost always difficult to love. We are all hard people. We're sheep. We're not the brightest of individuals. You know, God chose the the dumbest of animals to depict His people. Because we often go astray. We don't listen. We fail to follow the heeding and leading of God our Father. And we are ever in need of rescue. We are often hard to love. And that's why you need to know that God's love for you is not based on your lovability. God's love for you is based on His innate character. It is in the person and will of Almighty God to love a people for His own possession because of the sheer love with which He loved you. He loved you. Jesus loves you and He loves me. Why is He worthy of our praise? He loves us. Number two, He has freed us. John says that. He says to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins... By His blood. Now, maybe you have a translation that doesn't have the word "free" here. It might have the word "washed." It might say He has washed us from our sins by His blood. And that's because there's a a textual issue here. There's a perhaps a, an alternate translation uh, of the word here. Sometimes a different word appears that that has the same. Uh, beginning and not in a different ending, and so uh, it can point to washing, but it's almost certain that what John has in view here, the better textual evidence, is for freedom. It's It's for our having been liberated. John wants you to know that Jesus Christ is the one who has set you free. You and I, every one of us, the whole world, we were in bondage. We were bound in the chains of our sin and our brokenness and our infidelity to Christ and our disobedience to the will of God. We were bound in our sin and God came along and freed us. He paid the price. He he didn't free us by by simply saying you nobody's going to bear the brunt of this. Everybody gets to go free. It's not like canceling student debt. Instead, instead God frees us by the blood of His Son. It requires sacrifice. Something has to be done. The price has to be paid. You and I don't get to walk free unless someone bears the chains for us. And so the hope of the gospel is that by the death of the Son of God, by His blood poured out, you and I are freed from the penalty of our sin. And so Christ is worthy. And He's worthy because He's made us a kingdom, John says. We have a new identity Certainly John is going back to Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 and the desire of holy God to have a people who would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, God's own special possession. It's what Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 and 11 where he talks about the fact that we were once not a people but now we've been made God's people and we once had not received mercy but now we've received mercy and because of that we've been called out of darkness into marvel light. We, We have a new living space. There's a new reality about us. Paul said in Colossians 2 that we were delivered from the domain of darkness and we were delivered into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Once you and I were absolutely on our own, hopeless and helpless, we were wandering in the muck and mire of our sin with no possibility of saving ourselves. And the sheer grace of the Lord Jesus Christ came into our lives and took a bunch of ragtag sinners and put us together in His eternal kingdom. It's why on Sunday I... I drove home the reality that we belong to each other. Because once we didn't, once we had no unity, but now we've been united by faith. And He's made us priests to the Father. He says He made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. Jesus is our high priest, but Jesus employs us as priests, as those who offer worship and acceptable sacrifice to him. We don't dive too deep here, but just for a moment, let me tell you that that there's good reason, there's good reason for us to understand that what comes in the revelation is a redemption and a renewal of what once was in the garden. In the Garden of Eden, there were two people, Adam and Eve, that God created for His own good pleasure who were given instructions about how to honor Him. And theologians say that what's being depicted in the story of Adam and Eve is the portrait of a temple. It's a temple in the garden that God creates. It's a place where acceptable worship is offered to God in obedience to His command. And then sin messed all of that up. And that what God is doing by the work of, of of redemption and new creation that we see unfolded here is He's bringing us back to what He once intended, which is a people who walk with Him in obedience to His command and offer acceptable sacrifice and praise to Him. And so it shouldn't surprise us that what God wants is for us to be priests, that is for us to offer worship to His name. There's a word of greeting And there's a word of praise. Who is worthy? Jesus. And why is He worthy? Because He loves us and frees us and made us a kingdom and priest. And then John tells us how we should praise Him. He says at the end of verse number 6, he says that to Him be glory and dominion forever. Glory is the weight. It's the weight. The heaviness. The immensity. The depth of God's greatness and grandeur. And what John is saying when he says we should give glory to our God is he is saying we should give to God the importance, the weight, the heaviness of our life. We ought to put more emphasis on God than we do anything else. He's worthy of the fullness of our devotion, of the largest presence in our life. And He's worthy of dominion. That is, He's worthy of our of our hearts and our lives and of all that we are. He, he's worthy to have control of us. He's worthy to reign over us. And when should we praise him? We should praise him forever and ever, John says. He says to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So a word of greeting and a word of praise. And then there's a word of Assurance. And I want you to see four words of assurance that we see here in verses 7 and 8. And the first is this, that we have the assurance of his return. He says in verse number 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty John begins by offering us the assurance that Jesus will return. He is coming with the clouds. Certainly in view here is what we read about in Acts chapter 1. You remember that great witness where Jesus says that not many days from now when the disciples received the Holy Spirit, power would come upon them and they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we see that Jesus ascends into the clouds and the disciples are standing there looking into the heavens and two angels, two men in white robes, Luke tells us, they say, Say to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? Jesus, who you saw ascend, he will come in like manner someday. And so what we have is a fulfillment of that reality. That just as Jesus ascended into the clouds, so one day he is coming in the clouds for his own He will return. There's assurance of that. There's assurance, number two, not only of his return, but there is assurance of his recognition. John says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. See, what John is pointing us to is this assurance that we won't miss the return of Jesus Christ. How do you know? I mean, sometimes we we joke and we say, well, you know, we thought we'd been raptured. No, we, we won't ever think that. It will just happen. We won't miss the return of Christ. None of us will. Those who are believing and those who are unbelieving. Those who are believing won't miss it because his return will bring them into eternal unity with him. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That so we will forever be with the Lord. And those who do not know him. Those who pierced him, John says. That's everybody who's outside of him. It's it's not to say that these are just the Romans or just the priests. It's not even to say that that these are just those who lived in the days of Jesus. It's to say those who are outside of him, those who are going to be held to account for his crucifixion because they did not receive his redemption, they won't miss him either. And the reason you know that they will recognize him when he returns is because of the assurance of his retribution. That's number three, the assurance of his retribution. It says there, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Amen. The revelation of John is not given to scare us, but there are some scary things in this book. And greater than the deepest and greatest tribulation that will face the world, including the people of God, is the sure and certain judgment of God and the Lamb against those who do not wash their robes white in his blood. Charles Wesley, the great Methodist hymn writer, penned a beautiful hymn called Lo He Comes with Clouds Descending. If you've never heard it, I cannot strongly recommend it enough. And in this hymn, Charles Wesley talks about the process of Jesus' return and its effect on the world. And one of the lines of this great hymn text tells us that those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, will be left deeply. Wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall their true Messiah see? You and I have the assurance that Jesus will return and he will be recognized, and the retribution. Of his justice against those who pierced him will be sure because the nations of the earth, the tribes of earth outside of his kingdom will wail on account of him. And then there's the assurance of his reign. For he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. In verses 9 through 20, you see the beginning of the first vision. We may not make it through all of this, but we will make it as far as we can. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see first in verses 9 through 11, John's situation John's situation verse 9 tells us his physical situation he says I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus see John points us here to his his particular struggle He is being persecuted. If we were to understand the tradition of church history, uh, then we would take it that John was uh, an escapee. He was almost put to death. There were 12 disciples of Jesus. Judas Iscariot killed himself after his betrayal of Christ. The other 10 disciples of the Lord Jesus were all martyred. They were all put to death on account of their faith, save John John was to be boiled in a vat of oil and somehow escaped, according to church history. And after that, because of his preaching of the word of the Lord, because of his witness for Jesus Christ, he was exiled to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. That's his physical situation. He's exiled. He's away from the people of God. But his place away from the people of God has not put inside of him a despair of his situation, nor a betrayal of his people. Instead, John is ever committed to the people of God because of his faith in Jesus Christ. What stands out for us in John's witness in verse 9 is this, his identification with the people of God. See, John doesn't lift himself up and say somehow I'm removed from the difficulties of a Christian life. John doesn't say, you're going through hard times, but let me sit over here in my private corner where I never experience any pain and tell you how to persevere in the midst of difficulty. Instead, John writes and he preaches from a place of brokenness and despair in his own situation. He's talking about how to overcome because John is learning how to overcome. And so I think John teaches us fourth four realities about the partnership between pastor and people. So I've said them this way. Number one, your pastor is your partner in tribulation. John says, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the difficulty, in the trouble. This is not something that is put off. It's not far from their circumstances. It's not something that's removed from them. It's something they're walking through. And John says it's not just something that the people in the church experience. It's it's something he experiences. John was an elder in the church at Ephesus, according to church history. And so after after Paul has ministered at Ephesus, John's made his way there and become a leader in the church at Ephesus. He has a closeness and an affinity to these people. They're his people. He cares about them. And John says, I know you're going through difficulty and suffering and trouble. I just want you to know I'm there too. Pastor and people walk through difficulty together. If we don't walk through it together, we won't achieve what God wants us to achieve for the sake of His glory and His kingdom in the world. We belong to each other. I just want you to know that Mary and I love you deeply, more than we can convey. And the only thing we want to do in our lives is give ourselves, for the sake of Christ and His church, And that's not unique to me or to us. That's the call in the heart of every pastor. It's why God sets us apart to this work. It's why God sends us to his people. It's not because we're perfect. It's not because we're holier than others. It's because God's put in us a love for his people. And we want you to know we're in this thing with you. Your pastor is your partner in tribulation. Your pastor is your partner in the kingdom. John says that, doesn't he? He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. So John here, listen, John is able to look past all the trouble and say, listen, it's not all bad. We got some difficult things we're facing. There's some hard times in the view. We're walking through some valleys. But listen, there is hope. There's a cause for rejoicing. There is a reason to be glad. We are not just partners in the darkness of this world. We are partners in the kingdom of God. We belong to the same family. We have the same destiny. We're going to the same home. We serve the same ruler. We belong together in God's big kingdom. We're partners in the tribulation and partners in the kingdom. And then he says, We're partners in patient endurance. He says, There in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. John is calling us to overcome in this book. It's a call to persevere. It's a call to endure. It's a a call to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of His testimony. And that call to persevere or to endure, it's practical because we really are going through some difficult things. I've told you before, some of you probably haven't heard it, so you hear it now, you hear it again many times. That my philosophy of ministry is it's really simple. I want every person who begins a walk of faith in Jesus to finish a walk of faith in Jesus. Because you and I know plenty of people who've walked away before they finished. We know people who had an experience of grace, they made a decision, they they followed through in a public act of baptism. They they were joined to a congregation. And then somewhere along the way, they drifted. And I don't just mean they drifted from church attendance or they drifted from their faithfulness in giving or serving. I, I mean they drifted from Jesus. Where once He had the controlling factor in their life, now He's all but a... Distant memory. Herb Revis, the great pastor of the North Jacksonville Baptist Church, says there aren't any crowns for quitters. There are only crowns for the faithful. John says we're partners in the patient endurance. We've got to get to the finish line. And we're going to run this race as long as God calls us to do it side by side, stride by stride. And when we do, along the way, we're going to see some of our brothers and sisters in front of us getting to the finish line just ahead of us. And we're going to call back to some of our dear friends, urging them to come along behind us. And we're going to hear the voice of some calling to us. And in the middle of this race, it gives us hope to know that we're in it together. That we are partners in patient endurance. And then we are partners in Jesus Christ. John says these things are in Jesus Christ You and I, we have been made kin, family, brought into the same tribe, all because of Jesus. The unity that we have is because of him. It is not because of ourselves. It's not simply because our values are aligned. It's not simply because we have a similar social background. It's not just because uh, we have the same political affiliations. It's not even because we share the same family tree. It is because... We have a partnership in Christ himself. You see John's physical situation. And then in verses 10 and 11, this is where we'll end for this evening. But in verses 10 and 11, you see his spiritual situation. I want you to see in these two verses three requirements for genuine worship. Three requirements for genuine worship. Let me read them again. John says in verse uh, number 11, Ten, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. The first thing that John wants you to know is that genuine worship is fueled, it is fueled by the Spirit. Genuine worship is fueled by the Spirit. John says, I was in the Spirit. All of this experience of grace, all of this understanding of the truth, this vision, this revelation of Jesus Christ to his servant John, it all happens because John, in his worship, is fueled by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You remember that Jesus is... In John chapter 4, encountered a woman at the well. And there he offered to her living water. You remember her response? What'd she say? Sir, tell me where I can get it so that I won't have to thirst anymore. I'm sick of lugging this jug down to the well every day, drawing water. Give me the water that satisfies. She wonders, why would you talk to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We, we don't have anything to do with each other. You guys say that God's to be worshipped in the temple. We say God's to be worshipped on our mountain. We, we don't even practice faith the same way. And what does Jesus tell her? The hour is coming and is now come when those who worship the Father will do so in spirit and in truth. our worship is fueled by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is not to say that we have not genuinely worshipped if we do not express certain charismatic gifts. It's not to say that we've not genuinely worshipped if we don't have certain emotional expressions. It is to say that what moves us past the mere acts of and causes us to enter the presence of God is our dependence upon the ministry of the Spirit. It's like this. A train is on its tracks, and the truth of the Word is the track upon which the train rides. It keeps it in bounds. It causes it to accomplish its end. But the train won't get anywhere without fuel. And the Spirit is the fuel that moves the train along the track. Your worship and mine is along the truth of the Word in the power of the Spirit. Genuine worship, it's fueled by the Spirit. It is fostered. Number two, it's fostered by consistency. You notice that John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That reference to the Lord's Day is almost certainly a reference to Sunday. Uh, the Christians, first Christians understood that the first day of the week was a symbol of the resurrection. And because of that, they gathered in their homes on the, on the first day of the week. They, they broke bread together on the first day of the week. They were told by the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians 16 to take up a collection on the first day of the week. And though this reference to the Lord's Day is the only time in the New Testament that we have such a phrase, every theologian that I can find seems to be in agreement this is a reference to the Lord's Day. And so I think what we're to understand is this, that John, because he's pastored the local church, John is used to gathering with God's people for worship. He's used to breaking bread together and gathering together in fellowship and sharing life together in the praise of Almighty God on the first day of the week. And so even though John is exiled, even though he's on his own in this island called Patmos, he doesn't forsake the act of worship. I think there's a consistency to his life. I think he's not just worshiping on this one Lord's Day. I think he's worshiping every Lord's Day. And it just so happens that on this Lord's Day, this particular one, when John is fueled by the Spirit that God favors him and God fosters his worship through that regular encounter. And he's able to hear a particular message, a particular word from the Lord. So genuine worship, it's fueled by the Spirit. It's fostered by consistency. And then I want you to see that it is filled by the word of the Lord. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Because John worships in the Spirit and because John is consistent in his worship, he's put himself in a position to hear To be filled with the word of the Lord. You and I, when we gather for worship every week, we ought to come expecting to receive. To receive the word of the Lord. And we receive a written word. We receive a word that has been completed and a word that has been affirmed through the centuries by the Spirit's work. A word that God empowers and yet we open this book in our times of corporate worship in our grow groups and Sunday school classes and in other settings and we do it because we believe that we will receive instruction from the Lord himself that God will speak to us and my friend if you don't come expecting for God to speak to you that might be telling It might say that you've not been listening. It might say that you've been satisfied with what you've heard. It might mean that that's why your experiences of worship are sullen or lackluster. So offer God genuine worship, fueled by His Spirit, fostered by consistency, and filled with the Word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you take this word that we've heard and hide it in our hearts so that we would not sin against you. May we, may we, Lord, be encouraged to overcome because our adoration and praise and allegiance are to Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead who has freed us from our sins by His blood. Go with us. And give us grace and peace. We pray it in the name of our triune Lord. Amen. Amen.